Dr. Andrei Bukharev is the Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. He has published a couple dozen papers on epistemology, metaphysics, philosophy of religion, and other subjects. Andrei, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Andrei, would you share with us your own faith journey? Like, were you raised religiously, and how did you get to wherever you are today? I was uh, raised in a religious family. In fact, actually, I was raised in a Pentecostal uh, household. Both uh-huh. my parents are quite observant um, Christians, and when I was a child, were uh, members of Pentecostal churches. In fact, my father was a Pentecostal minister in the Assemblies of God. Uh-huh. So I grew up in a deeply religious household. <laughs> Not merely religious, but deeply religious, and one where there was a, a good deal of, I wouldn't say this so much on the part of my parents, but at least in the churches, uh, a fair amount of anti-intellectualism. Um, and so, during my teen years, I pretty much walked away from all of that. Um, I, I can't say that I thought of calling myself a Christian at that time, but I, I certainly didn't want to have anything at all to do with the church. And uh, in my late teens, I became involved with another evangelical church, the Calvary Chapels in Southern California. And um, while, while now I, I don't have a lot of good things to say about the Calvary Chapels, um, at the time... Uh, it was still a, a place where they were at least a little more willing to um, engage with people who were, um, you know, who, who had questions and who didn't want to uncritically accept uh, various tenets of the faith, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I quickly grew dissatisfied with that, and uh, over time I found myself eventually in the Episcopal Church. That's where I've been for a, a while. Now, in terms of you know, I, I consider myself a Christian, but one time I was pressed by one of my colleagues, and he said, what, what, are, what are you? And I, and I said, well, to be frank, I'm a Christian agnostic. So, um, you know, I really don't, if you ask me, do I know that God exists, my answer would be no. Uh, do I think it's irrational to be an atheist? The answer would be no. Do I think it's irrational to be a theist? The answer would be no. <laughs> what do I think? Well, I accept certain propositions as true. And I take it that acceptance doesn't have to include belief. So acceptance should be regarded as being a broad type that includes dogmatic acceptance or belief as a subtype. And then there are various ways of accepting propositions as true that are non-dogmatic or don't involve belief. And I take it that someone like myself would fit the description of persons who accept various tenets of uh, Christianity uh, as true um, without being sure that he, in my case, actually believes any of them. And many of them I actually just to be honest with you, I don't believe. But as I see it, at the heart of Christian faith really is a commitment to uh, really a way of life and not so much assent to a variety of rather uh, ramified metaphysical doctrines. So to, I think some people would probably regard persons like myself as not really fitting the description of being a real Christian uh, as soon as they start scratching the surface. But I, I, I think I'm still a Christian <laughs> of some sort. So I'm, I'm a liberal Episcopalian. How's that? Well, that actually probably doesn't clear anything up <laughs> to say that you're a liberal <laughs> Episcopalian. <laughs> right. So you do have a paper, though, coming out saying acceptance does not entail belief. But I think that this whole notion is going to be unfamiliar to myself and a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So what would mm-hmm. it mean to accept something without actually believing it? Oh, good. Good question. An example that I use in one paper of mine is when, let's say, for instance, I've done measurements, let's say, of a table of mine. And I measure it, and suppose that the table is, I don't know, 48 inches wide by 52 and three-quarter inches long. And I'm looking for, you know, something to properly cover it, okay? Um, 
you know, when I when I when I go to the store uh, and I ask for, let's say, you know, a, uh, a cloth to cover it, right? I'll take it as true that that the that that what I'm looking for is somewhere around 50 inches by 55 inches. Um, when, as a matter of fact, I don't believe that it's 50 by 55. I take it as true that it's 50 by 55, just for the purpose of actually acquiring a cloth to cover it. But as a matter of fact, what I believe, on the basis of what I've observed, is that the cloth that I need, if I were going to be accurate, what I would actually want, if I wanted to just actually cover the table, it would be something slightly smaller. So that may not be the best example, but let me give you another example. Suppose that I'm going to go skiing for the first time in my life, okay? And, you know, I have my doubts about my abilities on the slopes, okay? And, you know, I really want to do this. I really, 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 really want to ski. Uh, my belief can undermine my confidence and make it impossible for me to actually gain, right? Yeah. So what I do is I convince myself that I can do it. But as a matter of fact, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance going on because if you really ask me, do you think you can really do this? My answer would be, no, I don't think so. But to the extent that I take it as true that I can do it so that I can, let's say, you know, successfully ski, um, I'm accepting it as true that I can do this. So I take an attitude toward the proposition, I can do this, right? I can ski. That is not the same thing as belief. It doesn't involve the exact same kinds of commitments. Because if push comes to shove, the way I'm going to react uh, under certain circumstances would be quite different from, let's say, if I actually believed that it's true. So as I take it, just accepting something is true without believing it is going to dispose me to behave in ways that I wouldn't be disposed to behave were I to actually believe it. If I believed it, I'm probably going to have stronger commitments to acting in certain ways than I would if, let's say, I just merely accepted it without believing it. And I think faith is like that. I think faith involves acceptance without necessarily involving belief. And I, I think that's, it's, it's important to keep that in mind because I think it starts making sense of what people like, let's say, Soren Kierkegaard say and a lot of other people say about faith. That's to say that there's something venture, venturesome about it, right? Um, and what's venturesome about it is not so much that you're deceiving yourself and getting yourself to believe something. It's that you're taking a positive cognitive attitude towards a particular proposition, and that, in turn, is enabling one to take further steps, let's say, to actually perhaps ultimately inculcate belief within oneself um, or to at least lead a lifestyle that one at least thinks is going to be you know, worth adopting, but it requires that one have a certain kind of attitude towards certain propositions. Um, and those propositions would be ones, let's say, about, you know, oh, I should be caring for my neighbor. Oh, I should have concern about um, what God thinks about me and, and so on and so forth. So, so, so to the extent that a person falls just short of believing something is true, but takes it as true in order to, let's say, do certain things, I take it that that person is accepting it without believing it. One more example for you. Suppose that I want to play with a child, okay? And I want to do a really convincing job. So um, I'm going to play, say I'm with the kid, and we're going to play um, trolls versus knights. You're trying to impress a woman. That's why you want it to look like a, a, an impressive job. <laughs> exactly. That's what you're trying to do, right? <laughs> exactly. So, and so what you do is, you know, you imagine that you're the troll so that you can really do a convincing job. <laughs> and uh, I, I take it that in imagining that you're the troll so that you can do this and, 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 and moreover do a really convincing job, um, you're accepting it as true that you're the troll 
for the purposes of this particular game. But notice, imagining is going to be considerably weaker. So it's going to be a weaker variety of acceptance than, let's say, the kind of acceptance that's involved in my, you know, going skiing, let's say, and I've never skied in my life, or for that matter, buying a cloth or whatever else it might be. So I think these kinds of things can come in degrees. So if you'd like, there are going to be really, really weak varieties of acceptance, and there are going to be really strong varieties of acceptance. And the strongest variety of acceptance is going to be full belief. The weakest varieties would be things like imagining. And somewhere in between, there are going to be things like hypothesizing that P is true for the purposes of you know, testing the hypothesis, right? You take it that P is true, so you can go out and you test it. You may not be convinced. You may not, as a matter of fact, have full belief that, let's say, a particular scientific hypothesis is true. But you have to take it as true in order to go out and test it. Otherwise, your, your activities are going to seem quite strange. Really, if you think about it from a functionalist standpoint, the ways in which you're going to be disposed to behave are going to be quite different if you accept something versus you believe versus when you believe it. And furthermore, just even what it feels like is going to, I think, make a difference. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're not convinced by the imagination example with me playing with a child, let's say, think of people who engage in live-action role-playing. Right? Are you familiar with this, sure. this, this activity that people engage in? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so a LARPer. Right? I recently watched a documentary about people who LARP. And I was really I was fascinated by these people. I mean, they, 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 they really, really, uh, you know, they really get into it. And the only way I could imagine pulling that off in my case would be I would have to accept it as true that, let's say, I'm an orc. And furthermore, in, in accepting it as true, it's going to be even stronger than what I'm doing when I'm playing with a five-year-old, huh, yeah. let's say. It, it, it's going to require taking it the true that I am, you know, the orc commander and I'm going to go take out some hobbits or whatever I'm doing. I don't know. But it, again, there is this kind of attitude that I'm taking. But once again, notice something about this kind of, this, the, all the varieties of acceptance that I'm talking about, they're always motivated by some sort of pragmatic consideration. So they have a sort of, there's a sort of instrumental value to taking it as true that P, whatever P might be. And there are these varieties of different kinds of attitudes that fall short of belief. So the, the major differences would have to do with the kinds of your dispositions to act in certain ways, how strongly disposed you're going to be to act um, in, a, in a certain way, and then furthermore, the purpose for which you actually take the attitude. Those two things, I think, are going to be the, the, the real sort of the watershed issues that are going to sort of determine whether or not what we're talking about is belief versus just you know, non-dogsastic acceptance, if you'd like, or just mere acceptance. Hmm. Well, those are good examples. It sounds to me like somewhere on that spectrum between acceptance of an imaginary truth to play with a child and full belief might be all kinds of what is called fictionalism in a lot of fields. For example, Richard Joyce doesn't believe in objective moral facts, but he'll say something like, mm -hmm well, maybe we would want to accept certain moral facts as true, even if there are no moral facts, because they would help us live better in society or something like that. Kind of like right. you would entertain the thought that smoking is morally evil in order to help yourself quit smoking. Is right. that, would that fall into this? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so taking Joyce's example, it might be the case that, as a matter of fact, I believe that P is just false, but I accept it as true. But it could be also the case that I think the evidence is such that it's at least epistemically permissible for me mm -hmm. to uh, ac accept that P, um, because the evidence doesn't conclusively support P or not P. Well, so this account of acceptance and belief 
has ramifications not just for the degree of acceptance and the degree of pragmatic value, but also different degrees of epistemic normativity, so that we mm -hmm. can say, well, you need this much evidence in order to be justified in accepting something as true for right. pragmatic reasons, and then you need a little bit more if you're going to be justified in actually believing Proposition P. Right. The, the extent to which, the, the degree to which I end up believing something, right, the, the strength of my belief should be sensitive to evidence in a way that I don't think acceptance has to be. Acceptance, I take it, is something that while there are different ways of accepting propositions is true, in terms of non-dogmatic acceptance, it doesn't have this, we don't, we don't accept things to degrees in the same way that, let's say, belief is going to be admitting of degrees of belief. But... I don't want to suggest for a moment that epistemic normativity is such that epistemic norms trump all other norms when it comes to what sorts of cognitive attitudes we should have at any given time. So in this sense, I'm actually quite sympathetic to some ideas that Richard Feldman, who was my dissertation director, uh, that, that, that he's put forth. And that's to say, I, I don't think that there's any way that you can conclusively arbitrate between um, different norms. You've got all these various competing norms. You've got moral norms. You've got pragmatic norms. You've got epistemic norms, and they're competing with one another at times. And it's not the case yeah. that epistemic norms should always just immediately win out, right? So, I mean, take a case of, let's say, someone who is um, dying of cancer, right? And it's really in her best interest to take it that's true that she's going to survive. But the yeah. evidence is really conclusive against her surviving. Believing in that situation would be epistemically impermissible. And I don't think that she could actually, I don't think it's psychologically possible for her to bring it about that she believed without doing other stuff to deceive herself, in effect, right? Yeah. Furthermore, it would be epistemically impermissible for her to accept it. It's true that, that, that she would, as a matter of fact, survive. Um, but uh, given the circumstances, it's pragmatically justified for her to accept it. It is true that she's going to survive because it's in her own best interest to do that. I mean, I mean just her own right. state of mind uh, between now and the time that she dies, let's just assume that she's going to die, is at least going to be better than if she believes that she can't make it. Suppose she's that kind of person. I don't think I'm that kind of person, but, you know, I think these sorts of things end up being person relative in important ways that, in, in ways that epistemic norms are not. And that's, that's I, I think, something I want to make clear. I, I, I think that, that these various types of norms behave differently, and it's not the case that any one of these really conclusively is going to trump any others. So let's apply this framework of belief and acceptance and epistemic normativity to theism. It might be the case on, on this framework that, let's say, the usual theistic arguments fail and the atheistic arguments are also inconclusive. Uh, in that case, it would seem like belief in theism might not be justified, right. but acceptance could be, if that right. were true about the arguments. Right, and that's what I think is the case, as a matter of fact. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, so I, a Jamesian religious epistemology is, is in the right neighborhood, so to speak. Where I differ from, let's say, some self-described Jamesians like John Bishop would be that I, I don't think that the attitude that you can take in that situation could be belief. So, um, so that kind of situation, I think, is a situation where a person is, the attitude that the person has is one of faith in that kind of situation, right? Where, where again, it's one where the arguments do not conclusively support the existence of God and do not conclusively support the non-existence of God.
in that situation, I think belief would be imp- impermissible. And furthermore, it's psychologically impossible. And that's what I've argued in a paper of mine that appeared back in 2005, uh, that, that, that in, the, in these kinds of situations that, let's say, James is talking about and that Bishop is interested in as well, um, where a person has the, you know, these, is, is faced with a genuine option, right, where it's, you have these living, forced, and momentous you know, decisions that people have to make about what attitude to take toward, in this case, let's say, theism versus non-theism. In those situations, it, it would just be psychologically naive to say that the attitude that the person could take in that case would be belief. It's going to have to be some other kind of acceptance. And furthermore, it would be, I think it would be epistemically impermissible, actually. I'd go beyond that and say it would be epistemically impermissible for the person to actually you know, have full belief again in that situation. But it would, be, it, it would be epistemically permissible for the person to accept it as true, again, because of how these different attitudes are behaving. Belief is an attitude that aims at truth in ways that, let's say, uh, other ways of accepting propositions don't aim at truth, right? When we believe something, we take it to be the case that we have even good reason to think that we know that that thing is true. So that, that's very different from, let's say, when I merely accept something is true and somebody presses me and I say, no, 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 no I, I don't believe that. You know, I, I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure about it, right, this kind of thing. Hmm. Well, a moment ago you used the word belief in a way that I'm not familiar with. Mm-hmm. It sounded like you were, ta- you were talking about belief as a word that refers to, basically, if I believe something, that means that I think that I know that thing. Yeah, good, good. Whereas I'm used to thinking of belief as saying, well, I could be- there are all kinds of things that I could believe without claiming that I know them. Right, right, right. First of all, A, be- if I believe something, I believe it's true. So I, I can't mm-hmm. believe that P and believe P is, as a matter of fact, that it's false. So if I have full belief in those cases, I take it that in those situations, the person would have good reason to think that she knows something. Um, again, that's not to say that she does know it, right? Because there's going to be something else that's outside of her that she may not know, and that's whether or not it's really true. But I think that we can know things without knowing that we know them. I, I may not express it that way, but um, I, I do think that there is a sense in which belief not only aims at truth, but it also aims at knowledge. And I think David Owens has done a really good job at arguing for that claim. Okay. Well, I'll have to read Owens' work on that. That's a little counterintuitive to me, but... Uh... Yeah, no, it, it, it's slightly... It, I'm not, I don't want to say it, it isn't counterintuitive. Hmm. Well, now that we have some sense of how you approach the very issues of acceptance and belief, what is it that you accept or believe about God or the universe? I think before you had described yourself to me as some kind of a pantheist or a panentheist. That's right. What does that even mean? All right, so I'll define pantheism and panentheism for you, and then I'll say something about my own view. And then I want to say a little something about, then, then, then contextualize it in this larger discussion about acceptance and belief, because I think that there's some interesting stuff here that relates to um, some ideas that uh, actually that John Bishop has developed and that I'm, I'm fond of. Now, pantheists, of course, are going to identify the universe, not just the universe, because, I mean, if, if you accept multiverses, then it's going to be basically everything that exists with God. Right. Whatever that's going to be. So if you're a naturalist like myself, I'm not a supernaturalist, and you are a pantheist, that means you're going to identify God with the universe. And, you know, if we accept the multiverse hypothesis, then, you know, the multiverses. So it's going to be everything, the multiverse. Whereas panentheism is going to, is, is a thesis that the universe is a proper part of God. 
Uh, on some accounts, it ends up being the case that God is more than nature. And on other accounts, it's going to be God is more than the physical universe, but divine properties are going to be natural properties. So an example of a supernaturalistic kind of panentheism uh, is found in the work of someone like, like Charles Hartshorn, I think, is, is supernaturalistic. He may, he may he's probably rolling over in his grave if I'm, if I'm saying something like that, but, but if, if you read his work, if you read the divine relativity, I mean, really, the way that he conceives of God really is, is, is in a way that, that seems not at all dissimilar from the way that, let's say, substance dualists talk about, you know, persons and their bodies. So that doesn't seem consistent with a naturalistic uh, worldview, if you will. So naturalistic ontological commitments, I think, are going to require anybody who calls himself a panentheist that uh, you reconceive of the divine in such a way that, let's say, maybe along the lines of, let's say, how non-reductive physicalists talk about the mind and the body. So, so for instance, divine properties may be, uh, there, there might be divine mental properties, let's say, that supervene on you know, physical properties or something like that. So, I mean, you get an interesting story from somebody like Johnston. Mark Johnston recently has defended a version of panentheism that is, to be honest with you, it looks like pantheism to me, but, but he's calling it panentheism. Um, and, and it's sort of along the lines that I just suggested in terms of, uh, you know, you've got the physical and, and the divine is not exhausted by the physical, but the divine is no less natural for that. It's really tricky here, right? Because you get people like John Leslie, uh, who has rather nuanced views that that I, I think are consistent with naturalistic ontological commitments, but uh, nonetheless, there is this explicit Platonism that he's endorsing in places, and at times the actual picture that he gives of God is not really fleshed out. And I think this is one of the problems with a lot of versions of pantheism and panentheism that are out there. A lot of the people who defend both of these views don't really do as good of a job as, let's say, somebody like Hartshorn did once upon a time back in the you know, 30s and 40s, um, or for that matter, more recently, people like you know, David Ray Griffin and John Cobb and some other people like that uh, who defended various versions of process theism. I, I think they did a little bit more to try to spell this out, and the upshot was they were defending versions of supernaturalistic you know, panentheism, whereas you've got people who are self-described naturalists, and, and I think they have a lot of work to do, and that includes myself. They have a lot of work to do in terms of actually articulating a model of God that is consistent with ontological commitments that are naturalistic. I mean, an example of this might be somebody like Peter Forrest, who once upon a time at least was trying to to develop a a non-supernaturalistic version of panentheism. But John Bishop and some other people, I think, rightly criticized his account as being not consistent with naturalism. Maybe it wasn't full-blooded supernaturalism like you get from traditional theism, but the way that he conceived of God's relationship to the universe certainly seemed a little fishy. And more recently, in his newest book, Developmental Theism, he wants to say, well, you've got you know, God and the universe, and they're, they're correlated in some sense out of metaphysical necessity, but it's not a supervenience relationship. God is no, in no way realized by the universe, whatever that might mean. But there's God in the universe, and God is imminent in all the universe, except for centers of consciousness. And this kind of picture that he's telling, while it is definitely quite different from traditional theism, definitely falls short of being consistent with naturalistic ontological commitments. So, so now as for my own views, I, I just like to call my position divine materialism. If my view is pantheistic, 
that's fine with me. <laughs> if it's pantheistic, that's okay too. But I think that there's a sense in which metaphysically my view is pantheistic, conceptually my view is panentheistic. And let me explain what I mean by that. I take it to be the case that the big tension that people who are naturalists who are also religious have is one that's akin to what we have if we are naturalists in our ontology and we are realists of some sort about morality. But, but John, in his work, he talks about, uh, in his work on agency, he mentions that, yeah, we have these two perspectives. We have this perspective of ourselves as being moral agents, and then we have, some of us at least, have these naturalistic ontological commitments, and these two pictures of ourselves, number one as moral agents, and on the other hand, as being part of nature, there seems to be a tension between the two. So the, the challenge then ends up being one to reconcile the two, and he calls this project reconciliatory naturalism. So on the one hand, he says, look, conceptually, when we think about ourselves as moral agents, the concept of a moral agent is such that we can't reduce the concept of the agent as a cause to something more basic. So that's to say agent causation is conceptually irreducible. But metaphysically speaking, we can reduce agency to a picture that's going to be more compatible with a naturalistic worldview. That's to say you can reduce it to an account of agency, to, to an account of human behavior, of intentional human behavior, where um, all that you're doing is, is you're invoking causation by, in this case, mental events. And these are mental events that are you know, characterized in physicalistic terms. So where am I going with this? The, the fact that we, don't, we can't reduce a particular concept doesn't imply that, as a matter of fact, we can't reduce our metaphysics, right? So that's to say, you might have a metaphysics of agency that is reducible, it's reductionistic, but on the other hand, in terms of the concept of agency, you can actually continue just being frank and admitting that there, there's, there isn't going to be this neat one-to-one -one mapping between the concept of agency and the actual metaphysical picture that is that's going to be most consistent with broader ontologically naturalistic commitments that the person might have. So similarly, I think the same thing is true with God. We might say that on the one hand, the concept of God is of a person, not just a person, but a person who uh, cares deeply about us, um, has all the various types of characteristics that are going to be important, let's say, for um, having you know, certain kinds of religious attitudes. So that's to say a religiously adequate conception of God is going to include things like you know, God as a parent, God as someone who cares for us, and all of this kind of stuff. But that picture, right, this concept of the divine along these terms is not reducible, right? You, you can't reduce it without losing something significant. In the same way that you can't reduce the concept of moral agency to just event causal agency. But just like, in, let's say in the case of Bishop's account of agency, we might say, all right, we can't reduce this concept of the divine, but metaphysically speaking, what God is, right? The truth maker, if you will, right? So that the truth makers for the claims that we make about the concept of God don't have to, there isn't this kind of neat one-to-one -one mapping. So the way that the universe is might be enough for it to be, for us to be justified in using the concept of God in a particular way, but the metaphysics of the divine, as a matter of fact, should be understood in reductive terms. So, you know, let's say they might be in, in, in terms that are broadly spinozistic, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Right, so you've got this picture of God that you get from Spinoza, and if we think that conceptual, that, that, that in doing conceptual analysis, we should get our metaphysics from doing conceptual analysis, 
we might end up, you might end up saying, oh, my God, you can't say something like this, right? If, if you think about the concept of God, the concept of God is not of the kind of being that Spinoza is talking about. But I think Spinoza and a lot of current people who defend naturalistic views of the divine are going to say, look, no, that's all fine, but you're, 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 you, you can't do ontology by doing conceptual analysis. Conceptual analysis is only going to get you so far. You, you, as a matter of fact, you might be successful with respect to some aspects of your ontology, but we shouldn't expect that conceptual analysis is going to deliver everything for our metaphysics, right? And, and so the commitment to a view about uh, our language and concepts that requires that if I say that God loves me, for instance, that there must be, um, that the truth maker has to be such that there's something about the way the world is that's going to capture that in, in, in a way where there's a sort of one-to-one -one relationship between the two. Um, it's that picture that I think people like myself and even Bishop, I think, are discarding and saying we don't need to work with that. As a matter of fact, the metaphysics that we need to actually use these concepts in this, in, in this way, the, metaphysical, the metaphysics we need doesn't have to, it doesn't have to actually fit in the way that, let's say, somebody who's accepting this kind of picture view would say it would have to fit. So, so again, so the idea of truth-making, I take it, doesn't have to require that if I say God is love, for instance, that literally there's this property, love, and, and there's some feature in the world out there in the universe, and I can find it, and that's love, and that's going to actually make it true. No, no, there could just be something about the world that's such that it makes it true that I can utter God is love. Um, so, again, a lot of work is needed here, but I think that a lot of the hard work has already been done by people like John Bishop, by people who, who haven't even thought about philosophy of religion, like C.B. Martin. Actually, he did once upon a time. I take that back. But people like C.B. Martin and John Heil and some other people who have actually said, look, look, semantic ascent, conceptual analysis, it's all fine and dandy, but ultimately our ontology, we have to separate it from, from doing conceptual analysis because it's not the case that we're always going to get the right picture of the world from our conceptual analysis. But, but this frees us in a sense. This allows us to actually use concepts in a particular way and do so justifiably without at the same time having ontological commitments to, you know, some weird properties in the world, uh, including some kind of strange-looking ones that traditional theists, I think, are committed to. Well, if we're to get back to the basics, to the naturalist and specifically to you, to what does the term God refer? It, uh, yeah. What is God? Who is God? What properties and characteristics does God have right. in a naturalist worldview? Because it's obviously going to be very different than the traditional supernaturalist conceptions of God. Right. So, I mean, this, I think, is a challenge. Uh, first, in terms of doing the conceptual part of it, is to, I think, you have to work out what the requisite aspects of the concept of God are going to be necessary in order to have an adequate conception of God. And that, I, I think we're going to be pulled, we're, we're pulled in a lot of different directions at once. On, on the one hand, you know, you need, an, you need an account that's going to be religiously adequate. But furthermore, the concept that you give needs to be such that you're dispensing with those aspects of the concept of God that are the source of a lot of the problems with classical theism, like all the various omni-properties. I think we have to dispense with all these omni-properties. That's, that's one of the things. So I think you have to get rid of all of that, but you still have this idea of an active being who's personal and who cares about us in a sense. So, so here's another example. Right? I'll, I'll, just, I'll get away from something about God, let's say. Um, talk about color, right? 
if you know if, if I say you know my door is blue or something like that, right? Does that mean that there literally is this property blueness out there? Well, no, it doesn't follow from that at all, right? I mean, it, 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 as a matter of fact, it could be true that my door is blue, but the truth maker for that is going to be some really basic physical fact about the universe, specifically about about that location, <laughs> space time, right? Yeah, and frequencies of light and that kind of thing. Right, exactly. So there's going to be a physical picture that I have that's going to make it true that the door is blue. Similarly, there's going to be things about the universe that make it true that God cares about me. Now, what exactly those things are, God, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's what I think uh, people who are uh, committed to some version of pantheism or panentheism have to work out. And I think people are working this out. But the reality is, is philosophy of religion for the past 30, 40 years really has been uh, dominated by the agenda of conservative Christian philosophers. Yeah. And I have nothing against conservative Christian philosophers. Okay, a lot of these people are good friends of mine. I was once upon a time one of those folks. But I think for that reason, we haven't taken the time to try to explore some of these various options. If anything, if you raise these options, right, if you, if you, if you say, look, here's, this, here's another account, here's another way of thinking of God, you'll get laughed out of the room. That, I think, is one of the reasons why there hasn't been a lot of progress right here. But it's a bit like... If we thought our only options were, let's say, Cartesian dualism or eliminativism in the philosophy of mind, right? So there either are, there, there either is nothing mental, and we have to stop talking about the mental altogether, or you should understand the mental in, you know, dualistic terms, right? There are these non-spatial things that are minds, and they're interacting with our bodies. How? I, I, God, it's amazing to me, but I mean, you know, it's, if those were our options, God, that would be really horrible, right? The state of philosophy of mind would be a mess right yeah. now. You know, we, and, and it's surprising to me that very few people actually object to um, the current state of play in the philosophy of religion, with very few exceptions. There are people like Michael Levin, John Bishop, uh, more recently Mark Johnson, Peter Forrest, and a few other people that are out there, John Wesley, who have, you know, challenge the status quo, but, you know, oftentimes they still are not being taken seriously. They either don't get any attention, like Michael Levin, or they don't get taken seriously. And I think in some sense that might be true of, you know, what's happening right now with Mark Johnson's book. Well, and so the parallel with philosophy of religion is, wouldn't it be a sad state if the only two options were full-blown, old-time religion, William Lane Craig stuff, or really eliminativist, nihilistic... Uh, naturalism. That would be very sad. Right, exactly. Furthermore, it, not of the William Roe variety, right? <laughs> I think he's somebody who really appreciates the other side, but let's say, you know, I can't really think of any good examples right now. Uh, oh, 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 I know who, uh, what's his name? Uh, Dawkins, right? So he, basically our options were Richard Dawkins or William Lane Craig. That would be pretty sad in my mind. Um, <laughs> it would be really unfortunate. However bright both of them are, they're both really, really smart guys. Let's face it. But, God, if those were, if that's it, oh man, that would suck. <laughs> but as I see it, it's really not, we're not that far from that in terms of how things are in philosophy of religion. But then you have these areas like philosophy of mind where, no, that's not how things are. So, so why can't it be like that in the philosophy of, of religion? Well, I think part of what needs to happen there is that uh, you and Bishop and a bunch of people need to develop your account of God so that there's something to something to interact with as far as the concept of God. Right. I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. 
I mean, I'm starting to do more positive work on this. Well, that's the hard stuff. Right, that is the hard stuff. Let me go back to something I was going to say. I, I think that, that, that one thing that, that a lot of the supernaturalists have missed is that traditional theism of the Thomistic variety is really just as, it really doesn't have any uh, significant advantage, in my mind, over, let's say, Spinozistic pantheism. The reason I say that is this. If we're looking at it from the standpoint of, let's say, religious adequacy, right, does this give me what I need in order to, let's say, lead a life that I think is worth leading, let's say, as a religious person? Traditional theism, of, of the, again, of the Thomistic variety, offers me no clear advantages. On their view, God is simple. God is immutable. God is impassable. Sure, God has all these omni-properties and everything else. That's all really, really nice. But that isn't a God of love, is it? Right? I mean, we've got a being here who's impassable. So in what sense is God loving? Well, they're going to have to engage in the same kind of conceptual gymnastics and all this other kind of stuff that I'm talking about that, let's say, a naturalist faces. So what I'm getting at is this, is I, I think that the challenge for, the, say, someone who's a pantheist or a panentheist is really not much different in terms of in kind from, let's say, the kind of challenge that, let's say, a very traditional Thomistic you know, Christian might have. Now, why am I mentioning all of this? Well, I do think that in one sense, the pantheist and the panentheist has a distinctive advantage over, let's say, the traditional theist. Look, in terms of evaluating my options in a particular case, suppose that I say, you know what, I'm going to go with God here, but now I've got to figure out what conception of God to go with, right? Not all views of God are created equal. To use an example from John Bishop, a Nazi conception of the divine, let's say, that's going to be morally, you know, unacceptable, right? So now there are these other sorts of considerations, like moral concerns. Um, and, and, uh, and for that matter, there, again, there's these issues about religious adequacy also that I think are going to be part of the moral considerations, I think, that should then be guiding what sorts of options we should be going for. And as I see it, traditional theism goes out the door because of the problem of evil. You've got this omni-god, and now you've got a world where there is a lot of really pointless suffering going on. And I have a really, really difficult time squaring that with this idea of this being being someone who is omnipotent and yet also cares yeah. about it. But you said God's you know, immutable and impassable. So how is it that God cares? What, sense do, what do you mean about God caring? Well, now let's say if I'm a pantheist or a panentheist, God just is the world. <laughs> so to the extent that anyone is suffering, God is also suffering. On their view, God isn't even suffering with the person. And furthermore, I can now cash out an understanding of divine concern and divine care in terms of aspects of the universe caring for other aspects of the universe, right? When human beings, as a matter of fact, are manifesting care and concern for one another, in a, one, in, in a sense, what they're doing is, is they're manifesting something that's divine. Well, that's very interesting to think about how pantheistic theism or something like that would be a very radical view among theists, but really, in a lot of conceptual ways, it doesn't face any problems that are that much different than those faced by Thomistic classical theism. Right. So, you know, why should it be considered this huge radical thing? And in some ways, like you said, it has some advantages in facing the classical problem of evil, and it also has better prospects for being naturalized, which to a lot of people would be an advantage. Right. I did want to ask about something almost completely different. Okay. You 
you wrote a paper that I discussed on my blog earlier mm -hmm. about escaping hell, yeah. where you argued that it's more consistent with the Christian God's supposed good nature that he would allow people to escape hell mm -hmm. and reconcile themselves with God if they chose to do so. Right. But sounds to me like you probably don't believe in anything like hell, so <laughs> why write a paper about something right. like that? That's a good question. So the idea for that paper started in 1997. I was in seminary. When I was there, I started thinking about this problem of hell. While I was there, I started thinking that something like uh, the view defended by John Quanvig, an issuant view of hell, that's to say a view of hell where hell is not a place of punishment, but a place that God would allow for people to separate themselves from God. Um, but that made more sense, right? That was more consistent with, uh, with right. the conception of God that you get, especially from the Christian scriptures. And then one time I was at a, at a conference and someone was giving a paper that was quite boring, and I wrote the argument out for that paper. <laughs> so I'd been thinking about this. I was bored out of my mind, and I started thinking, yeah, you know, I want to work on this health stuff. <laughs> so at the time when I started thinking about this, I was still uh, a theist. Now, when I first started writing on this stuff, I was not a traditional theist, though. So I was an open theist. It's sort of funny because I went into seminary describing myself as a Calvinist, and as a pretty traditional theist. <laughs> My, how you've changed. So by the time I get done with seminary, I'm, 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 I'm an open theist. Yeah, and then by the time I was done with my master's in philosophy, I didn't think God was om omnipotent. So I thought God didn't have foreknowledge and God wasn't omnipotent. So, so, so I already didn't believe God was omni-God, uh -huh. okay? Well, seminary is a dangerous place. Yeah, it is a dangerous place. I've been going on further, doing further work in philosophy. That's very dangerous. That was also dangerous, yeah, exactly, because now I didn't have the theologians to constrain me. Although, to be frank, the theologians tended to be more liberal than the, than the philosophers I'd encounter who worked in philosophy of religion. So by the time I'm, I'm writing that paper, I already don't believe in omni-God. So, so it's an interesting question then already at that point, right? Because in that paper, my co-author and I, my co-author Alan Plug, and Alan is a traditional theist, so, right. so he and I were coming at this, from, from very different directions. In my case, I'm saying, look, if, you, if you're an omni-god theist, this is what I think you should think about hell. And by that time, I was actually universalist. So, so to the extent that I thought that if there is an afterlife, and this is still my view, if there is an afterlife, because I'm not sure if there is one, and I, I think there are different stories people have tried to tell that are consistent with naturalism, um, but hell, I don't know, and I, and I don't really think it's all that important, to be frank. But, but if there's an afterlife, I was already convinced universalism is, is the best picture. But we wrote the paper largely because we thought, look, if you're a traditional theist, you, there's this tension, right? On the one hand, you have this belief that there's a hell, and people go there. And furthermore, many of people are going to say that people are in hell for all eternity. My co-author and I both thought this is not consistent with the story that's being told about the divine in the Christian scriptures, the overarching theme is one of God as being love and God as a parent who desires reconciliation with her children. Yeah. So it seems totally arbitrary and totally out of place for this kind of being who's expressing these kinds of intentions towards humanity, namely an, an intention to be reconciled with humanity, to then say, screw you, I'm going to shut the door as soon as you die, and <laughs> you know, now you're going to experience my wrath forever. That just seemed completely insane to us. So we just thought, look, if you're going to be committed to traditional theism, you've got to face up to this, and, 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 and if you're going to be committed to the existence of hell, you cannot endorse this view, because there is a tension here, and, and, and the tension is such that it has to be resolved, I think, 
in the direction of favoring a conception of hell that's consistent with the story that's being told about God's character, right? You have very few places in the scripture where hell is being talked about, but you've got a ton of places where God is being talked about as being a loving, caring, just parent, right? Why would God allow hell? Well, then again, that's consistent with the love. In this case, if I love my wife, for instance, if my wife, let's say, wanted to leave me tomorrow, it would be unloving for me, let's say, to lock her into the house, <laughs> right? That would not be the loving thing to do. The loving thing to do is to say, you know, look, I can't force you to be with me. I hope that you come back to me, and I'll do everything I can to bring you back to me, short of forcing you, but I'm, I'm not going to force you to stay with me. That was the, the, the view of, A, of love, namely love is non-coercive, and B, of hell, namely hell is a place for those who don't want to be with God. In my case, I'm concerned. You know, I, I, I find it it's disconcerting to think that there are people who believe in a God who would do this kind of thing to people. And yet they think that they're morally superior to people who are adherents of other faiths yeah. that do other things. I, I, I just, I, I can't even get started on this. It's, it's, it's really frustrating. Yeah, and I think that you would have a lot of affinity with Wes Morriston, who I was speaking with uh, earlier today. He was talking mm -hmm. about how he doesn't even know how to respond to all of these Christians who proclaim that their God is good and moral and perfectly loving, but also claim that it was good and acceptable for him to command genocide and mass rape in the Old Testament. Right, right, exactly, yeah. How do you even respond yeah. to that? And you're kind of saying the same thing. You're saying, look, if God is loving in any way that makes sense to use those words, there's no way that he would eternally torture people even when they want to be reconciled with him. Right, exactly right. That's, that's atrocious and horrible and terrifying. That's exactly right, and I agree with Wes Morrison on, on that point. Well, this has all been very interesting. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, likewise. I've enjoyed it. Thank you.